0: And we have, uh, and we're going to talk about why we have fewer participants. Um, for those who are coming into the room from outside, maybe for the first time, just a reminder that this um, the proceedings here are embargoed until the um, audio transcript's released, which will be shortly after this. But so no live tweeting, that sort of thing. Um, also, if you look in your folders, there's something that little little IOP logo felt logo thing. That's a screen cleaner for your iPad, iPhones, Blackberries, whatever, uh, it, it sticks on the back and it keeps your screen cleaned, and you then market the IOP, which is kind of cool for us. So today's uh, this panel is going to be moderated by Lois Romano, who's a former IOP fellow and a senior reporter for Politico, and uh, Jonathan Carl who is the uh, chief political correspondent for ABC News, and this conversation is going to be about the Democratic primary time period leading up through the convention. So, Lois and John, take it away. All
1: right. Excellent. Well, thank you. Well, it's uh,
0: it's great
1: to be here and uh, great to have the the full force of the Obama campaign uh, across Just from you us. You're
2: going to need that. <laughs> um,
1: so, thank you very much. I, I want to uh, start right by coming back to uh, – because you guys look so happy. Um, uh, uh, can, can I rewind a little bit and go back to November of, of 2010?
2: No. <laughs> we want to really dredge up those memories.
1: Uh, I, I mean, uh, obviously there was that election, which I'm sure you guys recall, but, but you guys were just getting ready to start uh, uh, the reelect. Uh, unemployment was at 9.8%. Uh, the president's approval rating at 39%. Uh, right track, wrong track, way underwater. Uh, if this election you were now preparing to, re-election you are preparing to do, uh, was going to be a referendum on the president, he was going to lose. At that... We had
3: him just where we (laughs) went.
1: So, how soon, and what were the first steps you did to make sure that this was going to be a choice election? That you were going to make the Republican alternative, who looked, even at that point, like it was quite likely to be Mitt Romney, uh, unacceptable?
3: Uh, well, first of all, um, you know, there were events, le- uh, I-, I remember saying to the president the day after the election that I thought that the seeds for our re-election had been uh, planted uh, in that midterm election, um, and um, uh, I-, I told this to a group last night, and it reminded me of the Winston Churchill jo- uh, story about when he lost the prime ministership and someone said it was a blessing in disguise, and he said, well, it's rather well disguised. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, the fact is that um, we we lost um, the uh, midterm elections um, uh, because of the um, difference between a turnout and so that was one thing we obviously had to work on was turnout but the bigger thing was and and we could and we knew that the general election in 2012 would look mu- the electorate would look much different than it did in 2010 but um You're talking about 2010, right? Yes. 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 Uh, But the other thing is that it was clear, and I I missed the discussion this morning, that the gravitational pull in the Republican Party was very much to the right and that any candidate who ran for president on the Republican side was going to have to pass through that toll booth in order to uh, be nominated. Uh, And that... um, uh, and you know what you saw after that sequentially were a number of sort of center right Republicans dropping out of the race or not or opting out of the race, I think in part because they knew they would have to go through uh, that process. Uh, you know Governor Romney was willing to make those Faustian bargains, uh, and uh, they turned out to be quite costly so we've seen this before. we saw it uh, with the Gingrich Congress in '94, but it, it set us up to. I think sees uh, the middle, and you could see in our election that we did win moderates uh, by more than a few points.
1: But but going back uh, to to that point, and 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 a few months forward, I think you went to Chicago in what was it, January of of, of two thousand
3: eleven. Uh, eleven, yeah.
1: When when did it become clear to you that it was likely to be Mitt Romney, and and and, and what were your your first steps to say, okay, here's how we're gonna begin to make the case against him? Because it was
3: early. Well, first of all, I mean, I, my working assumption uh, from the time we won the election in 2008 was that Romney was the likely nominee, just because wow. I believe in the opposites theory of presidential politics. People never look for the replica or the remedy, a uh, replica of what they have, they look for the remedy. And so, you know, in, in contrast to Uh, Obama, the sort of businessman, and we knew the economy was going to be the issue because we were headed into this huge recession. So it seemed like he'd be the likely guy. But we weren't sitting around in Uh, I just, I I want to disabuse you of one notion. We weren't sitting around in uh, November of 2010 saying, you know, how can we take Mitt Romney down? That's Mm -hmm. not what we were thinking about. We were thinking more macro terms about the positioning of the Republican Party.
2: Well, you used that period though, you had had a great time element on your side, and you did use that period to start to define Romney, correct?
3: Not that period. I mean, I think that the definition of Romney came much, much okay. later. Well, let's you know I mean? let's
2: just talk about whenever it was. Um, <laughs> somewhere in there, you made a decision to um, define him as a right-winger, an extremist, um, and then the sub- text was that he was, um, you know, just a rich, out-of-touch corporate businessman. Um, why did you... Um, okay, that does it then. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but, but yeah. as, as some of us wrote about at the time, you did not go heavy on the whole flip-flopper thing. And my question is, you know, Stephanie, you had a lot of that information, obviously, from Kennedy. Um, McCain put out memos on it. Why did you, um, why did you not take up the flip-flopper mantle? initially.
4: Well, the question is,
2: why didn't we do flip-flopper Yes, flopper why didn't you do flip-flopper. You
4: know, yeah. um, so 2011, you know, Axe just walked through um, us thinking about the impact of the 2010 midterms. Uh, we watched what was happening in the Republican primary through 2011. Um, we also, you know, were deeply enmeshed in some of our own battles, budget, debt limit. But we were watching the Republican Party, and over the course of the summer, um, and into the fall, uh, we watched how Mitt Romney was was increasingly taking some of those conservative positions um, that he was being forced to because of the nature of his party, the outcome of the 2010 elections. What you needed to do, you know, uh, presumably to get the nomination, and they were they were piling up. Uh, we also looked at uh, how voters were receiving that information. And while you know the argument that Romney had no core was a powerful argument, um, it. it To build the foundation to get there, you really had to paint him as having positions uh, that were not in the mainstream, um, you know, whether it was on uh, corporations or people too or the, all the immigration positions through debates. We were watching that very closely
2: and it, it started to pile up on him. Was uh, there was there a concern though that um, if you did use the flip flopper and you know people were you know his positions on abortion or this or that, that some of those independents would say, Oh well, you know, he doesn't really not, mean
3: all yeah, this. Yeah, he's Right-wing not that concerned. Let, let me just say <laughs> yeah. it is we viewed this in two phases. Okay. okay. We introduced, and uh, I talked about it, we had a press call on it, David Pluff went on television, he made the core argument, uh, and we viewed that as an argument to foment discussion within the Republican primaries. We were surprised, frankly, that uh, more of the Republican candidates hadn't challenged Romney early on these shifts in position, and we thought that by introducing the issue of his... Um, The alacrity with which he he switched positions that uh, we could uh, lengthen the Republican primary process because uh, uh, core Republicans would be uh, doubtful. Uh, of his uh, commitment I think you're right in the in the long run um, flip-flopper was not a very good argument for us in a general election context uh, because we didn't want to give people an out to say well yeah his ideas seem kind of nutty but he doesn't really mean them I had someone say who was close to him but not involved in the campaign uh, uh, I said well how are you gonna like how are you going to segue back to the center after taking all these positions? And the guy said, uh, "Well, you know, uh, you know, Mitt's full of wh- whatever, and uh, everybody knows that. So you know, people would just they'll say that's Mitt. You know, he's but they they know he's not. He doesn't really believe that stuff, um, and uh, you know that became hard for him to do." Um, you know when the time came because he he never did solidify the base, and one of the reasons he didn't solidify the base is because i th- because we introduced this notion of the the uh, <laughs> flip flopping into the primary process and, it, and it,
4: it became a little how bit, did sorry, you do that uh, well it, it, we we did a little bit of it hands on, but yeah. the media had a lot to do with this too, because there was already a narrative of Mitt Romney. Um, similar to what uh, David was just saying about people you know, who were close to Romney, that he had been a flip-flopper. That, uh, uh, that was covered a little bit in 2008. It certainly was covered in his campaigns here in Massachusetts. Um, so it wasn't hard to convince anybody of that. But it was necessary to make sure that that was part of the conversation through the Republican primary. The first time he was actually challenged publicly about being a flip-flopper was on Fox News. And obviously we don't impact Fox News. Oh, come uh, on. <laughs> the Brett
1: Barr interview, you mean? Yes,
4: yeah. where that really set the stage, and that was around the time where you know there was a press call and uh, uh, Pluff went out and said they had no core, um, and that that was a good you know poking the bear uh, moment for us, and then it kind of took off, um, you know at at the same time because he was, you know, I'm I'm a little bit repeating what Axe was saying, Uh, because he was being challenged as a flip-flopper, he had to move further to the right to convince people, you know, I'm a severe conservative, Um, you know, I'm an ideal Tea Party candidate. Those are things that he had to do to convince people that he would be okay. He would carry their party line and and their agenda. So it was a a two-part.
5: That was the point that I was going to make. And, you know, we did put a little bit behind it. We did... Video that was moved out right. to everyone We did an ad mm-hmm. that sort of pushed people To the MIT V MIT uh, But it was all in the context of, of What would be a primary conversation For him, not something that we were Looking at as a long term strategy for the general Cause, election
1: cause You guys were playing in the Republican primary
4: well. Well. well, I mean, it's what you're describing
1: here. You're running an ad against Romney. You're, uh, no, it wasn't you're. you're an ad. It was.
3: It was a more of a video. It was a. We can use the word ad.
6: with a video to our people.
3: Yeah. It a was a. It was an online message to everyone. <laughs>
6: here's the thing. At the time, none of us. This isn't uh, none of us. No.
1: Seen, <laughs> it doesn't turn We 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 have given him a dead mic. Mark, to one. Oh.
7: Yeah. <laughs> Strategic Come a little closer. <laughs> Come here, but <baby. laughs> Messina.
6: So none of us had an idea at that time how right he was going to go in the primaries, right? When we were building this thing in March and April... Of 11, we couldn't have assumed he went so far to the right on immigration. To Stephanie's point, he got kind of forced into it. He did the personhood thing on the Huckabee show. He did some things that would later damage him greatly uh, in the general election at exact that moment. So we never thought the the no-core argument was a general election argument, but it certainly caused the primary to go longer and did him some damage. But it was always, you know, at the time, we couldn't have seen how far he was going to move to the right.
1: Was there ever a moment you thought one of the other guys could win?
6: No, here's the deal. We Wait, rated. She, she, she,
2: <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to poll here.
1: <laughs> we, we 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 had a nodding from Stephanie.
6: Every Friday we rated them in order mm-hmm. for our weekly memos, and Romney was number one every single week. He never went to number two, and so we always assumed he was going to be. You now people moved up and down. Perry moved up the list pretty high at the end. Santorum was the only one went left, but Romney never went to number
3: two. I think that there. My <laughs> supposition was that um, in theory, and I think many of you shared it. In theory, Perry was a potential threat to Romney. For all the reasons that we've discussed, if there was an authentic conservative uh, who could was well-funded um, and uh, plausible, that was the greatest threat to Romney in the primary process. And on paper, that was uh, Governor Perry, um, you know, until... I guess until he spoke.
2: <laughs> to what extent um, did, <laughs> to what extent did Huntsman, uh, uh, you know, play into your heads early on um, as you know a potential problem during a general, at least, and then getting to the primary? <laughs>
1: was he ever number two on your list?
6: No,
2: no Huntsman. Why,
7: no? no, not after November of twenty fifth. <laughs> right. I mean, what you just talked about. There's, yeah. there's no way coming out of that that he was going to win a Republican president.
6: We never thought he was
7: kind of be the general election.
6: Okay. It was a it, a it was era,
3: an, his candidacy was hard to understand in the context of the Republican the Republican party, you know, and I think the and you maybe you had some of his folks here, but the theory I think was that he was what they needed to win a general election, but you had to get from here to there and there was no way. And frankly, you know, we didn't appoint uh, Huntsman, uh, ambassador to China, with the notion of disqualifying him in 2012. Oh, uh, no, we really didn't. But um, his association with us was probably not a net plus in the primary. <laughs> but it, it, it didn't
1: hurt. I mean, it w- obviously he was the perfect man to be ambassador to China. But but it it
3: didn't hurt to put a potential challenger in Beijing. We were not. Uh, there was no. At no time did we have a meeting in the White House saying, um, "Let's find something for uh, for Huntsman to do so he won't run for president." Um, uh, he really was. Um, look, I was there. I was. I heard him introduce the president in Mandarin. Uh, he was well qualified for that job, and we wanted I spoke to spoke Chinese. By, in one of the debates too. We. Uh, yeah, that probably didn't help me. Either. <laughs>
2: Um, we just heard Matt Rhodes talk about how he was surprised um, at the intensity of the Bain attacks during the primaries. Um, did you guys have a little bit of a hand in that?
3: I mean, we had we, <laughs> yeah. we raised the issue. I mean, we were surprised, frankly, at some of the intensity of the attacks. Um, I mean, ironically, um, you know, uh, it was uh, Sheldon Adelson who – Funded some of the most intense attacks uh, on him, on uh, uh, on Bain. So, um, I mean, we were we were surprised at the uh, vehemence with which um, uh, they went after him, and frankly, also uh, just a slightly concerned that uh, by potentially going overboard, that 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 would spoil uh, the issue uh, moving forward.
2: Well, it it didn't, right? I mean.
4: <laughs> well, but there, it took them a while to get there. Um, that was January, r- It was right? late,
1: yeah. It was yeah. South Carolina. Late Burnham, December, yeah. January. Yeah, that's true. yeah January.
4: Um, and we, we thought it would happen much earlier on the Republican side, um, and we're a little surprised that it took that long. We didn't think it would happen with the ferocity that it did, um, mm-hmm. and we're worried that maybe there was a little bit of overshooting the runway on it and would take the issue off the table for a general election. Um, we did, you know, we, we had obviously nothing to do with what Republicans did on the issue, but we did start to introduce the subject through the Republican primaries, um, having some of the you know the now infamous Bain guys travel around, um, uh, Randy Johnson and others into the primary states, and you know through the DNC do some press events, um, just to remind people that the issue was there. Uh, but then you know a, a few of the, his primary opponents picked it up and ran with it much further than we thought.
3: But the fact is, it was an unnatural. I mean, it, it under. I think it underscored some of the difficulties within the Republican. Uh, based because you had a divided party and you had the sort of corporate Republicans and then you had these more populist Republicans Uh, and for the corporate Republicans it was unthinkable that you know raising the mistreatment of workers, outsourcing and so on uh, would be an issue in the Republican primaries. For the more populist Republicans you know they hit a receptive uh, audience so you know the reason we were surprised was because there was this tug and pull uh, within the party and these guys played a heavy card there.
1: You also had the tug and pull when, when we moved forward uh, after he clinched the nomination. And obviously there was Cory Booker and, and and others who were critical of the way you guys used Bain. Jim, how much were you hearing uh, on that? Uh, I mean, were, were, were you getting you know, supporters of the president uh, in the business
6: world saying, come on, lay off this? Do you have any other questions you <laughs> uh, like Yeah, I mean, I think it was an uh, ongoing conversation for a short amount of time. But to Stephanie's point, once, they, once the Republicans finally went after it and did it on their own, you know, it sort of was easy for me to say to some folks on our side uh, that this is fair game and everyone's doing it. And here's the truth. It was a very small amount of people. The majority of uh, our supporters understood exactly what this was about and, and what we were doing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a presidential campaign. Everyone's going to have an opinion. Can you let, me, ch- uh,
3: let, me, let me, before yeah. you go forward, I know there's a fascination with tactics, but tactics really don't mean anything unless they're informed by, some, by a strategy. And, Seamus, you ought to talk a little bit about sort of the context of this. Our whole campaign was predicated on an argument, and that argument was that, we needed to build an economy that worked for the middle class, that the middle class had been pummeled over a long period of time. And within the context of that, the Bain argument was really quite relevant and important. Uh, It wasn't just a tactic. It was a reflection of an attitude. Uh, And uh, David, why don't you talk a little bit about the research that under – you don't mind if I –
8: No, but also
2: in in talking about it, um, also take the next step and tell us how well it worked for you. I mean, you did the research, and then we understand it worked well in certain states. Go ahead.
8: So in in early 2011, it was very important for us, knowing that the economy was going to be the fundamental issue, to understand the president's strengths and weaknesses relative towards it, and the same thing with Governor Romney. Um, Here is the tone and tenor of what we heard in a lot of the focus groups. Uh, I like the president. Uh, These are undecided, independent voters for the most part. Um, I think he's trying really hard. I think that he shares my values. But I'm concerned that things either haven't turned around fast enough or they haven't turned around. When they would talk about Governor Romney, uh, they would talk about his technical expertise. Here's a guy that seems to me that he's been successful at different things that he's done. And to David's point about the strength of Romney in this environment, that technical knowledge that he had about the economy was very, very important. The importance of Bain was to basically give him the technical expertise, but essentially say just because he's being successful doesn't mean that you, middle-class family, are going to benefit from it. And so that was the important thing on a very meta-meta level is essentially, look, the guy's been successful uh, at everything he's ever done. But, you know, when he wins, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you're going to. And one additional point that I think is important that our quantitative, uh, especially Joel Benenson's work, uh, did on this. There was a fascinating question we began running in 2011 that talked about what's the best way to grow the economy? A strong and vibrant private sector or a strong middle class? And, I mean, frankly, I was surprised that by a margin of about, you know, 55 to 38, 39, across the board, there's this idea that a vibrant and strong middle class was really the key. And in the focus groups, group after group after group after group, we would hear these undecided independent voters saying things like, look, I need a guy, a president who from the beginning to the end, his entire focus is going to be on things that grow the middle class because that's the way you grow the economy. So, so I know it
1: wasn't your ad, but the Priorities USA cancer ad, what kind of an impact did that have?
8: I mean, we didn't uh, We didn't look at, you know, a specific uh, ad test.
1: Uh, but that dominated the story well, for, for several Let's days. Let's well, just you, put
3: this in context, though, because you're Ohio. talking yeah. about an ad that ran yeah. twice. Well, yeah, it it, you got, know, it got more free media. Understood, to- but, it, but but for the average voter, yeah. uh, this this was an obsession with you guys, <laughs> but for the average voter this just wasn't really on the radar screen. I mean, there wasn't this recoil from something they had never seen. Uh, It wasn't a discussion in the focus groups. Um, You know, this is one of those places where there are two universes. There's the universe in which we all live, and then there's the real world. Jim, Jim, could you you ever see yourself making an ad like that?
5: I I don't think that would have been the tone and tenor of of where we would have gone. Um, And and I, I just want to underscore what David's saying. You know, I mean... We were having a hard enough time when we were putting two thousand points behind the spot, let alone, you know, when when it gets played two or three times. And it, but it, it can get got it. I the mean, cable chatter and media. all that. Yeah. But among voters, yeah. this was not something that that it penetrated. But
1: but what was the What was the reaction in Chicago? I mean, when when, when you first saw that that ad? Well, look. We. I mean, I know what you told us at the time. You, you, know, you kind of deflected. But I mean, we're, we're, now it's all over. We can, I mean, what, what, what were you thinking when you saw it? Like we, like, oh my God, what
6: have they done well, now? Or were you thinking,
3: we, we thought that brilliant. That that it went. <laughs> no, no, no. We we felt that the ad went farther than it needed to go. I mean, the fact is that the indictment was not an unfair indictment, short of Im, implying. I mean, and I don't. It th- I think the implication was less clear than you guys did. But short of implying that that there was a, a direct line between Romney's decisions and this woman's death. Um, uh, you you know, think that was, that's an okay argument, that there was a direct line? I think it's a – no, I, I said it is not, not a direct okay, argument. And we said at the time that it, it wasn't. And, I, you know, we could not communicate with the priorities people. I presume that the things we said had something to do with their decision not to run the ad anywhere. Um, so uh, it really more of more than anything, it's a it is a little parable about how coverage of modern politics is done uh, today, because the ad uh, created it dominated coverage, but it didn't dominate the race. And now I will say there are other ads that Priorities did um, during the course of the campaign, including the the coffin I'm ad. That was very, very right, perfect. effective. Perfect. And most of their ads were, were very, I think, down Main Street on this issue of middle class viability and Romney's practices in business and what that might say about his philosophy. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not here to condemn all the work that they did. On that particular ad, we thought that it went too far, and we said it went too far.
2: Um, we're going to jump around a little bit because um, we want to get a lot in here. Paul um, Paul Ryan. Um, tell us a little bit of your reaction when he was picked. I, I know uh, some of you did not expect it. Um, you know, you thought it was going to be maybe plenty. Um At what point did you realize it was going to be him? What was your reaction? And since it was two weeks before the convention, how did that impact your strategies?
6: Um,
4: well... Um, <laughs> You know, we had um, the same strategy no matter who it was, really, because if you looked at each one of the uh, potential VP picks, it fit right into the storyline, that it was doubling down on the policies of the past that crashed the economy in the first place and punished the middle class. Uh, Each one of them had a record that supported that in a pretty big way. Now, Ryan... um, Ryan uh, was incredibly well-known amongst everybody in this room, uh, but also in the progressive base for what he stood for. Um, So that made our job a little bit easier. But in a a larger sense, it really just was a doubling down of everything that Mitt Romney had had stood for on the economy uh, and, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the middle class. Um, So, you know, I think that... you know, we, we all thought that it could have been Pawlenty, it could have been Ryan um, Portman. And, and Portman. Uh, those were probably the top three, and we were ready for either one of them. We were a little surprised that, you know, Romney had called uh, Ryan the intellectual leader of the Republican Party, um, that it, it seemed as though they weren't ready to uh, answer questions about whether – Romney supported Ryan's agenda uh, because Ryan was so well known for that agenda, and they didn't have clean answers on whether he supported the Ryan budget. I just remember a lot of back and forth about, well, you know, I'm the candidate; he's the vice, I'm the at the top of the ticket. It's my agenda now. But we had Romney on record. For so long embracing the Ryan budget.
3: Did you have he, me? uh, I mean, he, he, yes, he wanted the benefit of appointing the idea man without embracing his ideas. Mm-hmm. But that was impossible. It was impossible to make that separation. I mean, in picking Ryan, and I think, Teddy, you ought to speak to in a second here the uh, impact on our own base and on social media when Ryan was chosen. But um, uh, we did expect uh, a Portman, a Palenti. Um, <laughs> Because we thought Rubio that would, was Rubio ever anywhere on n- you? Not, not, not in our thinking. Uh,
2: would one of them have done better in your view um, against you guys? That, that
3: remains to be seen. Okay. You can make the argument we won Ohio. Now I think it's three points. It's widened out to mm-hmm. three points, but perhaps he would have made uh, a difference there. But, you know, they did this sort of rapid fire. I know this is uh, this afternoon's topic, repositioning over the course of six weeks uh, that could have begun. But here's what I, my observation of the Romney campaign Um it seems to me that they always were doing what they needed to to get through the next thing, on uh, the theory that just being on the ballot against Barack Obama, as vulnerable as he was, was enough. And so if you had to run to the right of uh, of uh, Perry on immigration, you run to the right of Perry on immigration. If you have to run to the right of Santorum on social issues, you run to the right of Santorum. And now they're approaching a convention that was largely a hostile convention for him, he still hadn't won over the hearts and minds of the Republican uh, consti- uh, base. And so Ryan was a popular choice with that base. It bought him more enthusiasm among the base uh, and in that convention. But what it also did was made Medicare a front and center issue in a way that didn't read down to their benefits. So we were debating Medicare instead of the economy. It tied him to the Republican Congress, and Congress was polling at, what, 10 or 12 uh, Percent, you know, they were in danger of falling within the margin of error, uh, so that nobody in America might like Congress. And he was now, and he's the idea man behind this. I think that one of the best lines in the campaign was a former Congressman Tom Perriello, who said, "Only Mitt Romney could." Uh, Point to Paul, uh, this Republican Congress and say, "I want the brains behind that operation." <laughs> <laughs>
6: uh, and, and, so and but, but
3: but but t- but I think it had a galvanizing effect uh, on uh, on our on our own base. And Teddy, why don't you talk about what happened around that
9: time on social media? Yeah, uh, I'll um, I I do think it had a galvanizing effect to be sure. I mean, um, you know, we came out of the gate that morning uh, when he made that pick with a website and a video and all that stuff. He um, you know, he he was the kind of person who, um, you know, not only did both bases have strong feelings about, but also was really well suited to be uh, uh, discussed and obsessed over on social media. I mean, he was sort of highly memeable, you know. Uh, and and you know, when you think about the you know the highly moments meme-able. that really uh, you know that really broke through. I mean, I think about his convention speech. And I know we don't want to move that far forward, but you know, the the Janesville uh, argument that he made. Um, you know, it was one of these things, you know, these, you know, the social media world lives in a bubble the same way I was talking about the Washington press. You know, not the, the voter doesn't necessarily hear this stuff that is trending on Twitter f- for the most part. The Janesville thing they did. And uh, and there are a couple other examples of that. And, you know, moving on to the general, I think, you know, those folks. By the
3: Janesville thing, you mean that his assertion that the plant had
9: closed after Obama... Okay. Exactly. And, and even, stu- you know, even sort of um, atmospheric stuff about him, like those photos that were taken for time. I mean, he was just sort of a perfect, uh, you know, I think, uh, kind of object for, uh, for this election and for the kind of impact that social media had on this election. And he was very galvanizing for us. And he, you know, he frankly raised us a lot of money and you know, recruited a lot of volunteers for us and all that stuff.
6: Well, Teddy, wasn't, wasn't that
9: night one of the five biggest nights we had online, the night they picked Ryan? Uh, the night they picked Ryan was up there, and then certainly the night that he, uh, b- the day of his convention speech was was one of the biggest. I mean, in, in terms of money, it On was one of the, yeah, yeah. Okay. In terms of money, yeah. that was probably fourth or fifth, something like that.
7: Wow. So, so. Can I ask make can I make more that about sure. oh, Ryan? Hi. Um, okay. my mics are working. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here go. Um, you know, one of the things that it did that's very counterintuitive at the state level is that Paul Ryan helped us in Wisconsin, and here's why. Our folks in Wisconsin were totally demoralized. They had just gone through all of these recalls, and, they, and we had lost. And it was uh, the hardest state for me as a field director to mobilize our volunteers. One
1: more fight.
7: Yeah, but well, people were, you know, they had put everything into it, and, 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 and we had you know lost, and um, <coughs> Paul Ryan regalvanized all of our troops in Wisconsin in a way that no other pick would have. And so I think you saw in some of the polling numbers, though, Wisconsin's getting a little closer. But for us, it was actually a, a boost. Um, not And across the country, it was, as, as, as Teddy talked about, it really um, you know, crystallized more um, what they were. you know, That, that pick uh, got our folks really excited across the board. But it really, really helped us in Wisconsin in a way that we didn't see coming, I don't think.
1: I want to get to the convention, but I have a very quick question last on Ryan. You guys still lost among seniors in the key states. I mean, the Medicare attacks are not – I mean, he – Ryan may not have helped Romney, but he didn't hurt them for the reason many of you and us thought he would.
8: Uh, Well, first of all, I – you know, the the Democratic Party since I think 1972 has not had a very successful record winning the senior vote, first of all. The more important piece around Ryan and Medicare is what we were hearing from voters – uh, these undecided independent voters, is that when they heard Medicare cuts, they put it right into that middle-class security bucket, regardless of age. So these aren't 65-plus voters, although there were many of those. But you had... I mean, I, I would love to hear, well, look, if you're if you're uh, over 55, you don't have to worry about it. I love the guy in a focus group in Des Moines who was 53 and, and you know, turned to the guy and said, well, I guess they're coming from me. Um, and so it helped... With the overall middle class security message, argument. which was key to what we were doing.
1: Okay, I, I want to move quickly on onto the convention. It's got to be an advantage, right, to, to, to go second. I mean, you, you get a chance to watch their convention, see what they did, and, and I'm I'm just wondering, Jim, because you, you were obviously busy in Charlotte getting ready, but how closely were you watching what was going on in Tampa, and what moves did you make based on what was happening up there to adjust your, uh, you know, what yeah. you were doing down in, in Charlotte.
5: I, I mean, I think we were very conscious of the uh, David. Nice uh, little Almond Brothers. <laughs> it's it's an improvement. We've gone through many years with Axelrod. It's been a cornucopia of various musical. Carry uh, <laughs> on. Thank you, sir. Uh, Look, you know, we were pretty clear about what we wanted to do in the convention for for some time, Uh, and there was, you know, a series of objectives that we had that were spelled out, unfortunately spelled out um, in Politico and some other places because the memo was leaked. and, and, but that, that was pretty consistent with what we tried to have happen, and that was prior to the Republican Convention. Now, um, you know, as we were watching the convention, clearly there were moments that, uh, that sort of jumped out at you. Uh, so, but, well... Look, uh, yeah, <laughs> Where, when was that? <laughs> you know, that provided a lot of fodder within uh-huh. the speech, the speeches that people mm-hmm. would would get up and, and communicate uh, to to millions of people back home. That was something that was in you know obviously an indelible moment, um, but but from an overall. Perspective of what is it that we were trying to achieve, those objectives really didn't change. The, the, it was did you imp-
2: tweak anything? I mean, for example, you, you came out pretty quickly about uh, Romney not the thanking troops. the troops, um, and I'm sure you had something in your convention, but did you beef that up a little bit, for example? Yeah,
3: those were the nuances right. that we...
2: Um, they were all
3: the sort of the, you know we had speechwriters who were refining speeches okay. and so on. But these were but the basic contours of the convention were were, were ones that we had settled on uh, long before um, the choice. Their convention.
5: The, the importance of this fundamental middle class message. The importance of a Bill Clinton who is going to be able to deliver what he delivered that night uh, to America that, you know, was obviously incredibly important to us. Those kinds of things were, were really locked down and well, we, uh, didn't had, change as We had,
3: like, a, there was an architecture to the convention as we planned it, and the first day was going to be very much the personal connection between the president and the middle class and what motivated him around these issues. The second day was going to be largely dominated by Clinton taking apart the Republican uh, economic argument. Uh, and the third day was going to be Biden testifying to uh, uh, testifying to the character of the president's leadership, and then the president's speech itself. And of course, our keynote on uh, on the first night was important to us. The uh, Mayor Castro of uh, San Antonio. Who broke the news to Biden that uh, Clinton was going to have his so prime It turned term out slot. to be a pretty good deal because uh, <laughs> higher numbers. Uh, uh, the numbers were. He got better numbers, got actually, where he was. Yeah, yeah. So everybody was happy.
2: Um, were you all surprised watching? <laughs> but but who broke the news? <laughs> who called him <laughs> Watching the hey, Republican convention. Right? <laughs> <laughs> my, my money's on Axara. <laughs> um, were you surprised watching the convention that it didn't hang together as well as?
3: Their convention?
2: Their convention, yeah. Yours convention, I think.
3: Well, I mean, they had the unlocked. The the the, the unlucky circumstance of the weather. You guys were behind that. To, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I heard on uh, some uh, on I think Rush said we were, but <laughs> I don't think we were. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, partly because it was compressed, but it, yeah, there was a lack of coherency. But the bigger thing was um, that rather than pivoting toward a general election audience, this was really a rally of the base, and uh, it, it it made it they 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 further estranged themselves from key constituencies uh, that, uh, you know in, that were going to be important in the general election instead of using it as a, an opportunity to burnish uh, uh, or uh, or improve their relations or their outreach to those constituencies so you know like I said, I think it was designed to it w- it was a base oriented convention what was odd about it was uh, that Romney was sort of an apparition in many ways there and there was more, seemed like there was more enthusiasm in the room for Ryan uh, than there was for, for Romney. I, I just, just wanted to comment. There was also either some bad luck or maybe somebody made
5: you know a misjudgment. But for example, I thought the video that they did uh, for Governor Romney was terrific. It ran, a terrific, great video, great but it ran video. in the wrong Instead hour. Of plant- and when I looked at it, you know, I was just going, I, God damn, I hope this thing ends before 10 o'clock, you know, because it was terrific. And I don't know whether Stewart produced that or who did it, but it, it really was uh, the kind of thing that I think could have had a lot of impact, but it, but it hit before prime time at 10. Just uh, one more question,
2: and on, on, then we'll move on, on the convention. Is Did anyone think that Clint might play well after watching it? I mean, what, what how were did you, think, when you were what was the reaction? How did you think it was going to come down the next day, given that he is beloved? Now, you could see on
6: social media, Teddy ran into my office to say.
3: Put your mic, <laughs> man. Okay. Stephanie,
6: turn
7: it off.
6: Hey, there we go. Okay, there you go. Go ahead. We are the the tech campaign, apparently. Um, Well, I remember Teddy running in my office saying this thing was exploding online, and you could see immediately what a disaster it was for him, both with our people, with swing voters, you know, our daily analysis of social trends. No one thought it was a good moment. Okay.
1: So so did Uh, you run in while he was still up there, or were you? here? Yeah. (laughs)
9: Hey, it works. Uh, well, or maybe, or maybe slightly after, but uh, you know, that was the night that we did that. Um, maybe some of you guys remember that t- that tweet that said uh, "seats taken" and it was a photo of the back of the president's. Right, 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 head. right. Uh, and and that was at the time the second most retweeted thing we ever did, the uh, ever you know since the Barack Obama account was created in 2007 uh, or maybe 2008. Um, Second only to the same-sex marriage announcement, so I mean, you know, really, you know, something that that stood out and it had the similar, you know, kind of resonance on Facebook. And then the next week, we get to Charlotte, and people are selling T-shirts with that photo saying "Seats Taken." So that I mean, you know, that was obviously something that, you know, really, you know, I think our people found it offensive, you know, in 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 a really visceral way. You know that you know, hearing Romney attack the economy or whatever doesn't do. But I mean, you know, such a you know such a personal sort of show of disrespect for the president was very you know. Sort of helpful to us. Um, good, g- good fundraising for. I mean, it was a huge
3: fundraising opportunity for us. The, their convention. I presume. I think there was energy in the
9: field after their convention. Sir. Uh. Certainly on the fundraising side, I mean, th- uh, that uh, day, the following day, it helped. Uh, I hope the Republicans uh, always uh, time their convention to be the day before a FEC deadline uh, because uh, it, the combination of the Romney uh, speech and, you know, to whatever extent the Clint Eastwood thing, uh, you know, motivated people. You had one even of your more, biggest fundraising days. Yeah, or second, it? if I remember yeah. correctly.
2: Um, Let's stick with you, Teddy, for a second. Um, We've been learning more and more about your um, very sophisticated and much heralded digital operation. Um, So I have a multi-part question. Um, Are the politicos and pundits, are they overrating the part that it played in this campaign? Um, Yes. Okay. But wait. (laughs) Um, Or have you really revolutionized the way campaigns will now tackle an electorate? I mean, are voters now really turning into just, you know, stats? Uh, what? Stats. Logarithms. Logarithms, yeah. <laughs> uh,
9: we didn't talk much about logarithms. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think a, a, a couple things. Um, first of all, I think it's important to keep in mind that the fundamental goals of the campaign haven't changed in four years and, you know, in, in, in 40 years. Uh, we were trying to do a... A very limited number of things. We were trying to recruit volunteers, register voters, raise money, persuade people, and turn them out. And that was it. And so, you know, I think technology and social media uh, can help you do that a little faster and, and a little more efficiently. Tell us how
2: it changed from 2008 in your answer, too.
9: Sure. I mean, you know, uh, well, in, in, with regard to that question specifically, you know, the 2008 campaign uh, was obviously very ce- celebrated for its effectiveness in the use of digital media. Uh, and I worked on that. Almost all of us did. Um, You know, it was really groundbreaking and really a marvel. The fact is uh, that Facebook was about a tenth the size it is now. Uh, Twitter was nowhere. I mean, we never talked about it once. Uh, Even the smartphone, I mean, now it's sort of hard to imagine or remember uh, a time when you weren't checking your phone every five minutes. The iPhone had been invented during that campaign in the summer of 2007. And so... uh, You know, so these things really came a long way, and I think there are a lot of things that we did for the first time in this cycle that people sort of wrongly uh, attribute to the OA campaign and think that we did then too. And and, and, you know, and and we honestly didn't. Now, that being said, like what? um, You know, I think I think certainly uh, I think all those things. You know, Facebook and Twitter were were effectively new to us this cycle um, and so and, and so you know that that changes your your mindset certainly from you know from my perspective and from my team 's perspective how uh, you
2: used Facebook is that what you 're saying th-
9: even th- I mean even thinking about it even even it 's being a significant uh, part of the strategy in two thousand and eight uh, uh, Dan Wagner uh, did an analysis after the election and, and concluded that ninety nine percent of our email list voted and so we entered into this election with an understanding that uh, anybody we were talking to directly uh, the, the vast preponderance of those people were going to vote for us. And so the question is not how can we serve them with content that's going to really make them turn out and vote. The question was how can we serve them with content and experience and all that and tools and resources uh, and information that's going to make them go out and get their friends. Because while 99% of our people, at least on email and you know Facebook and Twitter, presumably a lower share but still a very high share are going to vote for us, uh, of Barack Obama's now 33 million uh, Facebook fans in the United States or Facebook fans uh, globally uh, they are friends with about 98% of the US based Facebook population that's more than the number of people who vote and so you know, we knew all along that uh, if we were uh, treating our people with an experience and with content and again with information and resources and tools uh, not that would uh, get them excited but that would keep them engaged and go out and get their friends excited we knew that we could reach literally almost everyone in the United States uh, and that was a totally new uh, dynamic that just didn't, you know, didn't exist in
7: 2008. Did you, so, did you? I just want to sort of add there, um, the difference between 08 and 2012 um, in the digital world is that Teddy's team... Uh, we had erased we – we got very close to erasing the barrier between the organizer in Des Moines and Chicago in terms of what we were doing. In 2008, there was an online program, and then there was the field offices and what I was doing in Ohio and what people were doing in states. In 2012, the digital tools that we had and the analytics that everybody has hyped up was about serving that organizer and that volunteer in order to do the things that Teddy talked about, whether it was registering a voter in that area because that's what we need to do to win, whether it was persuading folks – or whether it was turning them out or raising money or building the organization uh, to do all of those things. And that integration, um, you know, took a lot of time to, to figure out, but it allowed us to basically run, you know, ward races or run neighborhood races, run local races where all the tools they were creating from dashboard to the you know, follow-up emails that we would do was about mobilizing people to go do one of those things on the ground. And then to also do that knowing that not everybody we were going to reach had a phone number or an address you know, or, or some other way for us to get them, but we were reaching a lot of people through their social networks on the ground and online. And the merger of those two was the biggest difference in my mind between 2008
9: and 2012. And, and that la- uh, very quickly, that last thing about you know, people we couldn't reach via phone is incredibly important. Uh, You know, uh, of our targets... 18 to 29 years old, uh, 50 per, or GOTV targets, excuse me, not our persuasion targets, 50% of them we couldn't reach by phone. So they either don't have a landline or, or we didn't have their cell number or whatever it was. Of that group, 85% of them we could reach via a friend of Barack Obama on Facebook. And so this is, you know, if, if, if you know Jeremy ran the biggest and the best volunteer operation in history, if it had been twice its size, we still couldn't reach these people because we didn't have their phone numbers. We were you talking about
2: targeted sharing? Is that what... Uh,
9: I am, but, but even just Facebook okay. generally. I mean, you know, yep. we, we, had an, we had an ability to reach these people who just simply couldn't otherwise be reached. So was the robocall dead? I mean, that seems like such a blunt and
3: well, – I mean, uh, were
8: we doing much of it? I'll let Jim speak to that. But, I mean, the robocall and, and what we were seeing – how we were seeing people react to 30-second spots yeah. in some ways kind of goes to what Teddy and Jeremy just mentioned. We would hear people go, Romney says A, Obama says B. I don't know what to believe. Yeah. Because I go to this site and it verifies that, I go to another site and I verify something else. Well, what do you believe? What's the basis of trust? Someone on Facebook that I know, the volunteer that comes to the door and engages in a conversation over and over and over again. So the fact that we had people at the door in districts, what Jeremy said is spot on. We ran ward races throughout the country based upon trust. And that is much more powerful uh, than, a, than a robocall or anything else that you can do. And for me, you know, that is the, the the Besides the fact that candidates matter more than anything else, the organization underneath that allowed us to run thousands of ward races throughout the country. So, 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 so Jeremy, br- bring me into
1: that ground game, which uh, you know, especially especially your, your your opponents and Republicans talk about the ground game as being just just, just so important here. I was watching. A lot of a lot of counties on election night, but but especially just kind of blown away by Hamilton County and Hillsborough County. What was going on there, and how much did you start focusing on these? These are two counties that Republicans just have to win.
3: Sure, um, I mean well, they
1: had their convention in Hillsborough County, and you guys won. Sure, um, Maybe there's a relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe they they, they ran. There was one of the few counties they actually uh, ran more ads than you guys ran. I right. Mean, they, they and and you guys won in Hamilton County. You know. Again, Republican County, you guys
7: went in there. Sure. Um, so I could talk about this for a long time. I'll try to be as brief as possible. And maybe I'll start with your robocall question. So you guys did a lot of polls in, in the room here, uh, clearly. And you would release the results, and, and we would have a debate about you know a lot of things. But one of the things that, that the Republicans started to talk about towards the end, and Beeson and other folks would talk about this, is uh, when you did a poll of how many percent of the, the voters you were talking to had been contacted by a campaign. In some places, it would look about equal. And in, in fact, in a couple of states, they might have been a little bit ahead. But you never ask the second question, How? You never asked the second question, and no poll did. How were they contacted? When we, we looked at this every day, when we were looking at our analytics, we'd say, "Were you contacted by us? Were you contacted by the Romney campaign?" And then we'd ask how. And they were get they, we would get beat by robocalls. We would get beat by mail. We would never get beat in any state by door to door, face to face, or personal phone call from a volunteer. Um, and and the robocall it's a tactic, and it can work to turn out people for an event or you know do some other things. But it's it, it that alone is nothing. Um, it had to be part of a bigger Strategy. Um, and I talked about this a little bit last night. I mean, our strategy was um, we believe that people on the ground building real relationships in their neighborhoods um, and talking to people outside of the traditional campaign tactics as well as campaign tactics. Um, these people, our volunteer neighborhood team leaders, owned the campaign. When they, at the bottom of their email, they would say, you know, David Seamus, neighborhood team leader, Hillsborough County. They knew their goals. They had eight or ten precincts that they owned as a neighborhood team leader. They knew how many people they needed to register. They knew how many people they needed to persuade. They knew where the polling locations were because their kids went to school there because they went to church there. Um, They knew where the barbershops and beauty salons were in the African-American community. They knew where the grocery stores and the small businesses were in the Latino community. They knew their community at Ohio State University because they were students there. They weren't paid staffers. Our staffers were there to support those people that lived in those neighborhoods, and they worked those lists Uh, and in 2011 it was hard Um, but what we did in 2011 was we got the 20 percent of people that were going to be the leadership the foundation that we were going to build on so that when people started paying more attention in 2012 we could build on that and how did you
2: get them can you just was that through the uh, it was a combination yeah
7: all the different ways you know we'd call people we'd email people we knew who had given money you know jim talks about this all the time Um, Too often we treat donors and and volunteers as separate universes. These are people that care about the president. They're supporters. And a lot of people became volunteers because they first gave $5. And a lot of people gave $5 when Teddy asked because they have been volunteers and they owned the campaign and they wanted to do more.
6: But an important point here is Obama. I mean, this organization reflected him, and people were that loyal and spent all this time because he stood for things they cared about, because he involved them, because we ran a campaign. He ran a campaign about big issues that they cared about. I remember about two months before the election, I went to Columbus, Ohio. Jeremy had me do a neighborhood team leader convention. This woman said the single smartest thing, and the moment I thought, okay, we're doing this campaign right, when she said, Jim, I've been a neighborhood team leader for Barack Obama in Columbus, Ohio for five years. I know every single person in my neighborhood. I know I know the Democrats who might not vote, I know the independents who are going to make up their mind the final days of this campaign. I know the Republicans who we could never get. She's like, the Romney person got here a month ago is from out of state. Who do you think is going to do better the last week of this campaign? And it was true. We knew exactly who we had to go get, and that, in part, is why we got to turn out numbers that, that mattered. But you built an organization around the president, and people were motivated by him. That's why so many people basically became full-time volunteers. We had over 30,000 neighborhood team leaders who did almost nothing but volunteer for us full-time.
1: Right, I, I want to ask about the, 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 the the air war component of this, because from something that just fascinates me, the Wesleyan y- you Media mean advertising matters. Yes. there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's a good question. How much does it matter? Uh, but but before you answer that, I looked at the numbers. The Wesleyan Media Project, you know, goes through and crunches how many ads ran, how much money was spent. The numbers blow me away because you guys ran, according to them, five hundred and three thousand ads. You know, thirty-second spots. Mitt Romney ran one hundred and ninety thousand. Uh, you guys ran more ads, even to the, on, the, on the on your side than they ran, including the super PACs. They spent more money. You guys ran more ads. What were you doing? I mean, I've heard stories of you guys going in and and, and being able to buy cable uh, at, at better rates because you bought national cable, and they were, you know, when 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 the local cable stations were. Uh, uh, jacking up rates in, in the key right. states he bought nationally. What, what did you guys, how did you guys work this?
5: Let me do this pretty briefly, because uh, c- probably for a lot of people, they aren't, they aren't going to be that interested in it. There's a couple of things that are the forces here at work. Um, first, y- you sort of have to look at this as Obama and allies and Romney yeah. and allies. And when you do that, I think it comes out to about $550 million that was spent by Obama and allies and about $685 million for Romney and allies. Now, here's the difference. So well, you guys ran a lot more ads. Yes. Yeah, listen. Here we go. <laughs> uh, so how? I mean, he, he's the business guy. He's the guy that figures out how to, you know. <laughs> uh, of the money that was spent, we spent 450 million of the 550 million total out of Obama, OFA. Out of that, 685 million dollars it was about 225 million that was spent by romney 225 to 450 so we spent about twice as much out of ofa as the romney people did out of the romney for president campaign and the difference there then is we're getting lowest unit rate time that's one of the big factors in other words every candidate every federal candidate is allowed to purchase time at the lowest unit rate of their best uh, advertiser, And so we get a rate that was often, as you got into the end of the campaign, half, even sometimes a third, of what the super PACs were paying for that advertising. So there was a real difference there. Second, uh, there were two other important parts of this. And, and one of them is this, what we call the optimizer, which was the analytics operation that was awesome. Through this campaign, where we were able to, and, and I really don't think you probably want to go through this whole thing now. What's called gets, the optimizer? Yeah, but this was a process through which we used the analytics operation inside the OFA headquarters, and just unbelievable. Dan Wagner, his team, is just, we should be doing shout outs all day long for Teddy and all the different people who were really looking at this stuff, uh, that allowed us to, in a much more targeted way, speak to the people we wanted to speak to, either in persuading them or uh, being able to turn them out, ultimately. To go to the shows that the people that we were most interested in... Give us some examples. So, so, so we'll- the example is uh, traditionally you would go get ratings from Nielsen and traditional sources. If you t- have direct TV, if you have satellite TV, if, if you have w- uh, a, a set-top box, we could look through uh, an organization called Rent Track, at the second-by-second second changes that you were making on your television set, when you went onto to an ad, when you went off, what show you were watching, yeah. when you changed. That information could then be combined with the voter file. They make clear we weren't looking at individuals because this was done by a third party, so there's a wall. We don't know exactly what Lois Romano is watching. What we know is that if Lois Romano is... Uh, you know, what demographically she is, whether that person is a persuadable voter, done on the outside, put together with a voter file and all the other information that you have, we can now take people like Lois and say, wow, here's where they're skewing in terms of the programming that they're looking at. It optimizes the ability to go in and talk to people. So, you know, for example, we were a little heavier in things like you know, TV land than we would have been previously. We probably got about fifteen percent additional efficiency in what we were able to do. And was Romney
1: advertising at all on TV
5: land? I don't think he ever went to TV land. But I mean that's just one example. And so where where were those women? Where were those key persuadable voters? And again, it's the combination of traditional, it's the combination of when you bought, we bought much, much earlier. We bought you know, so that we could get the programming that we want, and then we had this incredible tool from incredible people who were just doing amazing stuff with you, data.
2: As you were wow. studying all these models, yeah. did you um, figure out somewhere in there that not everybody was getting their information from TV?
5: Well, we um, know, we know that it's, it's changed. Okay.
2: Can you talk about that a little
5: bit? I mean, we should do this in combination. The and whole Teddy should be part stuff, of this yeah. as well, because you know a lot of a lot of our younger voters are not not tuning in. They're going to Hulu or they're you know going to a million other places. Teddy, why don't you jump in?
9: Uh, sure, and you know, Seamus and Jim should jump in as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people aren't watching TV, uh, and and so you know, we spent um, I don't know what the ultimate percentage was, but probably fifteen or twenty percent of our overall ad spend was on was online, uh, just on persuasion stuff. Which is what would what would that have been in two thousand eight? Just a comparison. Uh,
5: I'm guessing. I'm guessing it was probably more in the five to six percent,
9: seven percent, something like that. It was significantly more. But we, you know, we also, um, you know, as as Seamus was saying, you know, people really trust their friends, and they don't really trust political advertising, you know, for for the most part. And so we also did our best not to even make sure his. that sorry, not even his, uh, they trust. Jim's more than anybody else's, but you know, so we, you know, that's why we put so much effort into making sure that all of our people were effective ambassadors for the campaign. And one of the things I, you know, that was sort of consistently amusing to all of us, I think, is you know there was so much chatter about what a negative campaign this this ostensibly was. The fact of the matter is. You know, if we posted something on Facebook, 10 million people would see that if it was an effective post. 10 million people in the United States. Uh, And, uh, you know, for all of the sort of back and forth of of press releases and that kind of thing, millions of people weren't experiencing that campaign. They were experiencing a whole different campaign that was largely positive, that was largely about what their friends were saying, that was large, you know. And the negative stuff really doesn't move as well as the positive stuff online. And so, you know, what they were experiencing was this uplifting stuff about about supporting the middle class, about fighting for education, about fighting for that kind of thing, and it was, it was a whole different campaign that millions of these people were experiencing, some from the paid side, but also some from the, you know, just sort of the natural natural mechanics of social media. Um, you, asked, so you asked a question about, um, well, first of all, on Romney, one of the things that we were
3: Aware of was that they were buying news adjacencies very very heavily, which is sort of the traditional way to buy uh, media, on the theory that people who watch the news are likely to vote, and so um, you know that was uh, our strategy. I think was uh, from our for our purposes was much uh, much more effective. But you asked a larger question, which is, I mean, did we spend essentially? Your question is, did we spend 550? million or in our case 450 million on something that has no impact. Yes. Um, uh, I.e. are you guys idiots? (laughs) Um, uh, But, and the, and the, I think the truth of television uh, in a presidential campaign is that it becomes less relevant the deeper you get into the race. And probably because by the time you get to the post-convention period, coverage is so intense. And then, you know, debates take over, uh, for better and worse. Debates take over coverage uh, uh, during the period in which those debates are going on. So for a full month, debates were the center of the discussion, and it it renders ads much less – Impactful, uh, And so one of the key decisions that we made, uh, and, and Jim was in the middle of this, was uh, to front load uh, our spending uh, on television from May through August uh, on the theory that that's when it would have the greatest impact. I don't think there is in the modern age an example of a television ad after Labor Day that was uh, decisive in a presidential race. When you think of all the ads that we typically think of as having been impactful, most of them, uh, virtually all of them that I can think of, ran uh, before the conventions. And so we gambled. And we gambled on front-loading, not knowing exactly whether we could fill in the gaps. And there was some concern uh, at times as to whether we could fill in those gaps. We got a little bit of a break because there was a great reaction to our convention. We raised more money than we thought. September was better than we thought. But I I would say one of the key decisions we made was to front-load our media. We we only have about... just
8: finally, to David's point about how effective that was from our perspective, uh, while we did not see movement in the horse race, what we did see throughout the summer, both in the qualitative and the quantitative, first in the quant, that Governor Romney's unfavorables among voters in swing states were increasing, especially the very unfavorable. And that became very important later on when we were trying to determine how folks were going to break. That was the first thing. In the qualitative, we were hearing voter after voter after voter basically echo back the messages that we were giving them saying that Governor Romney didn't care about the middle class, and even though he may have been successful in business, that didn't mean that it was going to help me. So that front-loading helped to really set the stage in these voters' minds, and then when the 47% video came out later on, uh, all of that work that had been done Put that in the appropriate context for these undecided voters.
1: So now we we only have about four minutes left. I've got something quick, uh, and then Lost this. do. Jim, you said that uh, polling is broken. I think was was was, was the phrase you used. Uh, I'm wondering. I know how much different what the Romney team was seeing than what we were seeing in the public mm-hmm. polling. But but for you guys, what was different? You were doing a lot of. A lot of your own polling, a lot more sophisticated frankly than a lot of what uh, of of what the media polls were showing what how was it different from what we were seeing in in our polls.
6: Well, I want Seamus to join us, but we for this but we had three different looks in the electorate. Benenson was doing uh, battleground state polls, which were kind of macro what we're all seeing in the battleground states.
1: So daily tracking,
6: not daily until the end, but you know weekly yeah. uh, or every two weeks uh, into the spring, and then we had state pollsters who were very experienced in their states, people like Diane Feldman and John Anzalone, who had been in these states for a very long time, and then our analytics team was doing eight or nine thousand random sample every night uh, in the battleground states giving us a very deep look and that's how we did some of the modeling that Margolis just talked about uh, in the media stuff that we thought was very helpful. So we were getting three different looks at the electorate and why I think David and I had so much confidence the last couple weeks of the election was all three of them were saying the same thing. And it became, Wagner was seeing exactly what Joel was seeing, exactly what uh, Anzalone was seeing in Florida, uh, in a way that gave us real confidence. That combined with uh, early vote numbers every morning at 8.55, JB would walk in with early vote numbers from the day before, and you could see our people voting and our sporadic people voting. You took those three polling devices we had plus the early voting, and we thought we knew exactly where the electorate was. This is
3: really a fundamental question for you guys. Uh, which is, I mean, the, the, there was a proliferation of public polls, and each of them was treated as e- equally accurate. Um, you know, the Gallup poll, there was an obsession with the Gallup poll. We now know the Gallup poll was probably on the far end of wrong. Uh, and yet, uh, and yet, it it would become uh, sort of a uh, a motif of of the coverage. You know, while well, you're you're you know you're losing uh, um, independence, your the gender gap is gone, and you know I think David can speak to the fact that uh, you know what well, because we did have a lot of uh, resources. To, with which to do research, we kind of researched this and tried to make some judgments as to why it was that these media polls were uh, so off uh, and found that some as many as twenty percent of people who are actually going to vote were not making the media screen on unlikely voters and uh, and so you know it, there's a lot of there are a lot of questions to be uh, explored on how these polls are done and whether they should be accorded the kind of uh, status they're accorded because what happens is then it just becomes a big horse race story, and you guys don't even know where the horses really are. So why why don't you?
8: Yeah, I mean at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the race, we brought people in basically to look at all three types of polling, and basically deconstruct everything, do an analysis of what we were doing wrong, where we needed to bulk up. Look, we needed to do a certain percentage of cell phone. Because if we didn't do that, we weren't going to get FM, we weren't going to get African-American, we weren't going to get young. Uh, We needed to make sure that the voter list that that we we were using uh, was really uh, rigorous and and quality-controlled and made sure that it was a good list to work from. Uh, There were all kinds of recommendations that went out to all the pollsters. They adopted them. And throughout the campaign, Jim would call me in and he'd say, look, here's this public poll that says X, Y, and Z, that's completely different than anything we're seeing. What we would do with every single one, and we had a couple people devoted to this, was take a look at it, look at the assumptions. Are they doing cell phones? Are they doing voter list call? And deconstruct it so I could go back to him and say, here's why we believe this is wrong for the following reasons. But we questioned our assumptions from beginning to end. But the good news for us is by, you know, with about a month out, uh, we had uh, our uh, Benenson poll at 50 to 46. Um, we had our state aggregate pollsters. When you take Feldman, Anzalone, Harstad, you roll them all up together. They were at 50 46. You take the analytics nightly poll. Think about this: 9,000 interviews per night. And it's spread out across the nine states, or across the uh, it was eight states? I think it was eight. ten states. And their aggregate numbers were the same. What
7: was the 10th? Um, and so... well, you know. counting North Carolina? North Carolina. Yeah. That's right. You guys should, because you counted Ohio mm-hmm. on their side, which we, we were... No, no, no. You're no, uh, uh, counting North my Carolina. Ninth, so what's the 10th? So we had... Uh, Nevada, Colorado, yeah, Iowa, Wisconsin. 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 Yeah. Okay. Right. Sorry. But, Just but
6: a little I want to re- reiterate something Axe said, because it's a very important point. We took the ABC... Uh, Washington Post poll that it kept bouncing around. One week they had us down 15 with independence. So we looked at their screen and 20 percent of our voters A poll that
1: by the way was dead accurate in its last day.
6: Right. You're going we to go far in this organization. Right. <laughs> <Exactly right>. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of polls were, were were accurate their last day. And so we took their screen and 20 percent of people who had already voted would have been kicked out of their screen twenty percent especially young people and so that 's why back to your original point I do think you know, public polling needs to be looked at very carefully about what their screens are what their demographics are how much cell phone usage there is because you 're just missing huge chunks of
3: the election and I, I would tell you that from April and probably earlier through November uh, we were never in our own polling behind in the race never uh, we and the race traded almost uh, Consistently within a band, whether it was the larger uh, survey or when we went skinny down to the battleground states, in a band of two to four points, a lead of two to four. Maybe we got down to one at one point. After our convention and the 47 percent uh, 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 debacle, we we went to six or seven percent. Uh, but then after the first debate, it came back to to uh, to the three or four. So this race was. There was this illusion of volatility that was created by the public polls and perhaps by some um, artful spinning on the other side. Uh, But we knew the reality was that this race was fundamentally stable uh, throughout. And so, uh, you know, there was this, again, we're talking about the two universes, uh, the real world and the world in which all of us live.
2: Um, just a, a final question, because we're, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, in in this period between, well, during the primaries and up through the convention, um, is there anything you would have done differently? Uh, is there any miscalculations you made? It's hard to argue with success, I know. But um, in advising someone who comes uh, behind you in 2016, what would you, what would you say? I
6: think one mistake we made, and I think we made it for the right reason, but we waited too long to jump into super PAC world. Um, you know when we did it, it was—it it looked like a complete flip flop. It was hard. You know, uh, priorities is out there a long time trying to raise money without us, uh, and that was hard for them. Uh, and I think you know uh, that. Hi, Bill. T- <laughs> Hi Bill. <laughs> 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 for
5: first time we've talked to him in two years, so I mean,
6: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he seems well.
5: <laughs> That's Bill
6: Burton. <laughs> Is he a Democrat? I don't know. Right. Where were the uh... – and, and I think we underestimated how much the other side was going to raise. And we were building this thing in February and March of '11. I don't think we thought, you know, half a billion dollars of super PAC ads.
2: Anything else? All right. Well, thank you, guys.
6: Thank you. Really appreciate
1: it. So um, lunch
5: is available for everybody right out here. And it's sort of going to be a free-for-all wherever you want to sit.